So they're all at various stages of being trained for hoof trims and injections, and they'll all stick their tongues out on cue. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome back to the podcast that uh, is about to get a sequel for this episode, The Raw Safari Podcast. That's right, y'all. Um, you know, there's there's a little story behind this episode and the one coming after it that I, I kind of wanted to tell y'all about. So, uh, okay, if you've been listening to the pod for a while, you know that we have a very good friend of the podcast who has been on multiple times. Her name is Tiffany James, and Tiffany is awesome. She is in love with primates. She works at Zoo Knoxville, and she's just a great human, good friend, and, uh, you know, we've loved having her on the pod. So when Tiffany reached out to me and said, hey, there is a hoofstock keeper at Zoo Knoxville that I work with that is a huge fan and would love to be on the podcast and I think she'd be a great guest, well, that was a no-brainer. And thus I was introduced to Emily Mack, who is my guest today. And uh, it's it's awesome. I love Emily. We have a really great conversation. We go really deep um, on the story of the birth of a zebra foal and uh, there's this great giraffe baby story. The uh, our, our favorite end section, the the poop story. Poop story turns into a multi-story kind of hilarious, kind of awesome situation that I just love. It's it's a lot of fun. But I have a secret to tell you, which is that we recorded this episode all the way back in January. And it's now September. As a matter of fact, the funny thing is we recorded this episode right after I got to California for my two months of gigs down in the L.A. area where I got to go to all those cool facilities and and brought you all those episodes. And I'm now editing this episode sitting in a very different part of California um, nine months later. Life is weird and funny, but there you go. Anyway, um, however, before I could get around to releasing this episode... I found out that Emily and Tiffany had been approved to go and do some in-situ conservation work in Africa. Uh, You'll hear it mentioned in this episode because that's when I found out this was happening. And I instantly came up with the idea of holding on to this episode and then talking to Tiffany and Emily once they got back from Africa and releasing them as a two-part series. Now, I cannot stress this strongly enough. This is very important to understand. But like back in the day, I used to do two-part episodes where an interview would just go long. And so I would just split it up into two episodes. And um, uh, let's just say that y'all were not huge fans of that strategy, instead preferring long single episodes and, and all that, okay? This is not that. This is something that is very different than that. And I'm telling you that now because I really want you to come back and listen to next week's episode as well. So this week, you are going to hear all about Emily's work at Zoo Knoxville with their hoofstock, okay? This episode features possibly my favorite start to an interview ever, 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 ever. 
And it's got some great stories, and it's all just really wonderful. You'll even get to hear me do an interrupting John about butts. So, you know, good stuff, right? However, then next week, you're going to hear from Emily and Tiffany about their situation in Africa. They went and they did the thing, and it's really cool, and it all ties together. And so, yeah, this isn't a two-parter like we've done before, but uh, you're going to be hearing from Emily this week and next. And you're going to hear two really different sides of zookeeping, the the XC2 conservation work of taking care of hoofstock in a zoo, and then the NC2 conservation work of going out to Africa to work with animals out there. And I'm just really excited about doing it this way, as you can tell, because I'm rambling on in this intro. So anyway, that's what's happening this week and next, and I look forward to sharing all of it with you. Before we get to the interview, uh, make sure you you know hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes, including the next one. And um, yeah, make sure that you're following along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Safari, TikTok at Raw Safari Pod. You guys know all this stuff. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash Raw Safari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've said enough. Let's get to it. So without further ado, here is my interview, one of my interviews, with Emily Mack of Zoo Knoxville. Oh my God, you're feeding a giraffe. This is awesome. You just opened Zoom and there we feeding go. a giraffe. Hi, giraffe. So this is JJ. He's our, um, he's one year old. Okay, JJ. He was born on um, Christmas Eve, actually. Aw. What you doing? And then see if I can get the other ones to come over. Cool. So how um how quickly do giraffes grow? I know that they're born right around six feet. Um, yeah, so he's um he's around yeah, he was around six feet. He's probably around um ten feet now. Okay. Um when he was when he was born, he was a hundred and seventy pounds. Hi Lucy. This is Lucy, one of our females. And then, where is she? The one behind Lucy is Francis. Francis is JJ's mom. Um, So anyway, in terms of how fast they grow, um, he gained about 20 pounds a week. Wow. Dang. um, While he was growing. So now he's just over a thousand pounds. That's amazing. I know. And then... Right, and then I can show you his dad, Jumbay. Hey, there, Jumbay. So this is Jumbay. Hi, Jumbay. Um, he is JJ's dad, and he is about eighteen feet tall. Wow, that's uh, that's tall. Hi, I know. And they're about to go outside. Um, Nice, Danielle. Do you mind opening the door? Well, that was awesome. Let you see them before they get to go outside because it's finally warm enough for them to go outside. Yeah. Thank you. That was awesome. That was, um, you know, it's, it's 10 o'clock in the morning out here. And I, as, as you know, from listening to the pod, am not a morning person. Um, that was a really good start to my morning. Cause I woke up like 20 minutes ago and uh, I still have my bed head and, um, I'm still drinking my coffee and, and, and got to see giraffes. So thank you for that. Yeah. It's, um, one o'clock here and, it's just now warm enough for them to go outside. So wow, um, and they'll have access to the barn, so we may get some visitors uh, back in as we're chatting. So, well, that's trouble because giraffes are just so loud; they're just always they really yelling. Are. are they now? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 
I love this so much because the uh, we we just started and we're already completely off the plan, um, which I love. That's my favorite. Um, so, and I mean that because I, I do. I love improvising. But uh, why why don't we tell people who are listening? Because I already decided I'm not like cutting that and putting it later. This is how the episode's going to start because that's hilarious. Yeah. So, um, who the heck are you? Where the heck are you? And uh, what is your job there? Um, I'm Emily Max. I am at Zoo Knoxville in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, and I am a grasslands keeper three. So that means I take care of, um, the giraffe. And then we also have a herd of Hartman's mountain zebra. Very cool. Gotta love getting into some hoofstock. Yes. (laughs) I'm very much a a hoofstock girl. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, um, let's start off by talking a little bit about you and tell me how you, you became a hoofstock girl. Sure. Um, I've been at Zoo Knoxville for two years now, which seems like a long time, but also it doesn't. (laughs) Um, Before that, I worked for four and a half years at Zoo Miami in Miami, Florida. I love Um, Zoo Miami. Yes, I miss it very much. Um, But before all of that, and then I did a few internships and stuff, um, I grew up horseback riding, actually. Okay. So I grew up in the horse world. I was in the barn cleaning, cleaning stalls when I was 14, you know, all through middle school, college. Um, and I, I'm still riding, not as often as I would like to be, but I'm a, I'm a bit tired when I come home from work now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my parents have always been supportive of me and my sister's love of animals. So like we went to zoo camps i'm from cincinnati so cincinnati zoo is my home zoo okay that's a that's a good zoo to have as a home zoo yes it is yes i feel very lucky to have grown up going there um so i know you listen so you know this but i i call it my home away from home zoo because it feels like i'm home every time i'm there i love it (laughs) Um, but yeah we used to go to zoo camp um and just how you know our family still has membership so every time i go home we go to the zoo of course nice (laughs) Um, so are you the only one of your sisters who followed your animal passion into this field or are you like are are you like the brontes of zookeeping or something my sister's not a zookeeper but um she is in grad school and if i'm pretty sure i'm gonna get this wrong but if i remember the title of her uh major correctly it is animal um, ecology, ethology, and evolution. Ooh. But yeah. And what she wants to do is um, a lot of zoos have animal welfare curators or coordinators now um, that who use like the scientific method to evaluate um, animals' welfare levels and what we can do in zoos to improve that. So that's what she wants to do. Um, if she hasn't yet... Um introduce her to the pod and have her listen to the episode with Trisha Gunther because that is a big part of what Trisha does. But I think she would find it really interesting because she goes into some of what she does in that position. And she's also like the coolest human ever. So there you bonus. Yeah. Bonus. Yeah. I will definitely do that. Um, and she's doing her thesis on, um, African painted dogs in zoos and how the sex ratio in the pack affects like reproduction and um 
pack dynamics and stuff. So she's done observations here actually at Zoo Knoxville um, and in Miami and at Cincinnati. And I think at Blank Park Zoo. Nice. Uh, nice. So she's gone more the research route. Um, I love reading research and figuring out ways to apply it to like the animal husbandry side. But I learned in college that I don't enjoy being the one doing the research. I like the more kind of hands-on um, animal husbandry side. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I did an internship at Indianapolis Zoo with rhinos and giraffe while I was in college. Um, and then after college, I worked there as a seasonal keeper with the rhinos and giraffe. Um, and, you know, from there that just made me fall in love with the field. And, um, I knew in order to be able to get into my first full-time keeper job, I had to be willing to move wherever. Um, so I worked at a non-AZA place in Virginia for eight months. And then I got the job at Zoo Miami, which is very different than where I grew up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, but I was, I was kind of ready for something different. Um, and I enjoyed my time there. Uh, and I love the zoo. If I could take the zoo and put it up here and still work there, I totally would. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so let's talk about Miami for a minute because I, I've, I've only been there once. Um, you know, when I did my interview with Ron McGill to start the second season and, um, and I felt like a rock star tooling around that zoo with him on a, on a golf cart, like, yeah. you know, with this like famous guy. Um, it was really cool. Uh, hung out with the, the tree kangaroos there, um, which was awesome. But that zoo is insane. And that's coming from a dude who goes to a lot of zoos. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Yeah. Um, what, what was it like working there? Tell me about it. Uh, well, first of all, I love Ron McGill. Um, he is probably one of the greatest humans I've ever met. I feel uh, like there are two types of people in this world. People who love Ron McGill and people who have not heard of Ron McGill. Those are your only options. I would, I would agree. <laughs> um, yeah, the zoo is huge. So the walking path for the public, I believe is like three to four miles total. Um, so when I started there, I worked with all sorts of hoof stock. Um, I can list them if you want. <laughs> give, give me a rundown uh, of some of the cool ones. Okay. Because they have some uh, really unique stuff there. They really, they really do. Um, so the main run that I started on has um, Somali wild ass, the wild donkeys. Um, and I kind of became their primary trainer. Um, I think my horse knowledge has also helped with working with wild equids because um, they share a lot of the same body language cues and stuff. Right, right. And herd dynamics. Um, Sable antelope, giant eland, nyala, addicts, Arabian oryx, pygmy hippos. Nice. I do miss the pygmy hippos. I bet. I'm also picturing right now the exact area of the zoo that you were in because mm -hmm. it's like, I know that walk. It's a really, it's yeah. like kind of out there on the far end of the, the zoo and it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was on that team for two years and then the zoo went through kind of a shuffle with how all the keeper teams were organized. Um, so the Somali wild ass I worked with and we also had, we took care of the porcupines the African crested porcupines, um, they were getting put onto the carnivore great apes team. So I moved over there, never worked carnivores or great apes in my life. Um, 
was kind of ready to expand my horizons as a keeper though. Um, so I was on that team for about two and a half years until I left the zoo. And that team has Sumatran tigers, lions, painted dogs, um, hyena, Malayan taper, and chimps and gorillas. That is a heck of a shift. I mean, that's that's yeah. night and day, keeping wise. Oh uh, yeah. What, what was that like for you? It was it was exciting. Um, the main, obviously, like we work them, like some of the hoofstock we work free contact with. Um, the carnivores and great apes, we did not work <laughs> free contact. Wise, obviously. wise decisions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so working around them was slightly different. Um, they're not spooky like hoofstock tend to be. Um, I think the biggest immediate difference I noticed with the big cats was that they look directly into your eyes. Hoofstock don't look directly at you, which they have eyes on the sides of their heads. So it's a little harder <laughs> for them to do that. Um, but, you know, they're not going to directly follow you with their eyesight the whole time you're there and you can just, and being, you know, like two feet away from a lion that's on the other side of heavy duty mesh. Um, it's, it's intimidating. Yeah. I, I can see that. It's, I can it's see intimidating. that. Yeah. And you know, like we got used to it, but always had a healthy respect for, for those animals. And, um, and then the great apes, I learned I'm not a great apes person. <laughs> Now, wait, stop right there. Stop right there. You are friends with Tiffany James, who is the person whose entire mission in her life for a while was to get me to fall in love with great apes. Spoiler alert. She succeeded. I know. I know you heard it. But um, how? How has that not? How? How? They're really cool animals. They are really cool animals. I love them. They're really cool animals. I love like watching them and I will always, you know, if I'm at another zoo, stop to see them. Um, and I, I love the ones I worked with, obviously did my best, um, as a keeper to give them the best care Um, and training them. Yeah. And training them was fun, but also they are the only animals in the zoo that if they got a hold of our keys would know how to unlock the locks and undo the doors and they watch you and learn from what you're doing. Right. Right. Um, plus some, in some areas of the holding, they can reach through the mesh and we, they, Miami has two, two old lady chimps, um, that are both in their fifties now. And they're, I love them. They're, most of the time, absolute sweethearts. Um, but they have very skinny arms. So you really had to watch how close to the mesh you were because they could reach out and grab you. And if you weren't paying attention, they might try to. That's that's fair. That's fair. I can understand them being intimidating. Don't get me wrong. I just can't understand not also, you know, being a, a great ape person when you know, not even Tiffany, screw that, when you know Binti, who, who Tiffany introduced right. me to. I mean... Yeah. I literally, I will tell you, sometimes I'll be at a zoo and I'm like running out of time and it comes down to like, all right, am I going to go to like the great apes, especially in Columbus, this happens to me because Mm -hmm. of how they're situated. You can spend all day at that zoo and not see the great apes unless you purposely 
like hang a left and, and go see them. Yeah. And um, I will be like, eh, maybe I don't need to. Did, oh, Binti. And then I like have to go over that way. So, yeah. 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 So I think I enjoy them more when I am not responsible for keeping them contained. <laughs> I can respect that. I can, I can get that. So now, and then um, I left Miami to come up to Knoxville because I was ready to move closer to home. My parents are still in Cincinnati. Um, and I, I really enjoy being back in, in Hoofstock. Um, if, you know, Great Apes got like added to our section for whatever reason, I would do my best to give them the best care. Um, but I, I think I'm happy with with my huffies for now. That's good. That's good. No, I mean, everyone should be where they, they want to be. I'm not, I'm not picking on you for not working with great apes. You just, you, you're friends with Tiffany. I have to I, pick on you for, for that a little bit. Oh, Tiffany and I've talked about it. <laughs> yep. yep. She's asked I'm, me for advice on the hoof stock and stuff. And she knows I'm, she can, she can have all the great apes to work with. Fair, fair. <laughs> All right. So tell me about what it was like when you got to Knoxville. Sure. Um, so like I said, our area has um, the giraffe and the zebra. And then when I started, we also had a really old lady water buck um, who has since passed on. Um, so when I came in, I brought a lot of my um, equid experience to work with the zebra. And this zebra adults um that we had at the time we still have two of them one of the females uh passed away almost a year ago unfortunately um but they came from a place in texas where they were raised in a herd of dozens of other zebra on like thousands of acres didn't have much exposure to people um so it was a transition for them to come from that into the more traditional zoo setting like we have. Um, so when I started, like they were used to people being around, but they didn't want to come up to us um, to get food or, you know, do engage in any kind of training, anything like that. Um, and I, I couldn't have done it without the help of um, my team, obviously. Um, but we've been able to take them from running away if we even walk into the barn um, to now we're training with them almost every day, um, training in preparation to be able to do voluntary hook trims on them. Um, it's, it's almost a struggle to get them out of the barn now, if we need to shift them out <laughs> for cleaning. Um, so they've done like a 180. And then since I started, we've had, um, a, we had a baby zebra born. Nice. Um, he was, yeah, he was born the day before JJ, the baby giraffe. <laughs> Wow. Someone had a big week. Yes. And that was two days, the two days before Christmas. And then that Christmas we got like a snowstorm for Knoxville and all the roads were shut down and it was freezing and, you know, of course, of course. So anyway, the baby zebra's name is Mosey and he, because he's grown up with, you know, his parents already being mostly confident with people. And then we've been able to just be around him from day one. Um, he is very comfortable with people. We've been doing, I've been training with him ever since he was big enough to want to take food from us. Um, which was started when he was around five or six months old. Um, 
and now he's the bravest one. And if something's scary, he's the first one to go up to it while his <laughs> mom and dad, who are the other two we have, are like, oh, I'm going to see if it eats you or not. <laughs> Sacrificial child. <laughs> I mean, they are herd animals, so they're going to see what the other one is doing. <laughs> yep. Um, so that's been my main kind of focus since I started. Let's talk yeah. about that a little bit. I'm, I, I want to hear, I mean, talk me through um, the, the you know, pregnancy, finding out pregnant, birth, and, and first, like, what was that like? Sure. Well, we were not 100% that she was pregnant. Um, so around when I started, Tom, our stallion, or Ditokums is his official name, um, was just like starting to show signs of sexual maturity and his favorite female was not Lydia. Lydia's the mother of the foal, the baby zebra that we have. Um, Tom's favorite was our other female that has since passed away, Wiley. So any mating behaviors we saw was only from Tom to Wiley. And we didn't see any successful copulation until like, maybe six months after I started. Uh, we never saw him breed Lydia. We never saw him show any interest in Lydia. Um, she was the subordinate mare, so she would typically like hang out more by herself because Wiley as the dominant mare would chase her off. Um, but then we saw the physical signs that Lydia was getting late into a pregnancy and we're like, oh, she's probably pregnant. Is it possible that a wild zebra in Knoxville snuck into the zoo and did? No, no, no. <laughs> We did supposedly have a wild tiger sneaking around last summer that was never accounted for. So oh, we never know. We never know. Um, <laughs> but it was probably a bobcat. <laughs> Um, so Lydia was showing signs of being late in a pregnancy. Um, it's her first pregnancy. So we were like, oh, she seemed, and we consulted with, you know, other zoos. Um, I've worked around pregnant mares before and we were like, oh, she, if she's pregnant, cause it wasn't confirmed. Right. Right. She most likely will probably give birth in like February, like January, February. So when we came in on December 23rd and there was a baby, <laughs> it was not completely unexpected, but it was unexpected for that day. So, so tell me, like, walk me through that minute. Like, seriously, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the, the walking in and something has changed mm -hmm. aspect of, of zookeeping. So like y'all get to work and y'all are complaining about not having enough coffee or whatever it is. And then boom, take over and go like minutia. Like what do you see? What do you think? What, what changes about your day because of that? So I was actually off that day. Um, boo, <laughs> but you can probably then, tell me what happened. I, yeah, but then they called me and I came in at lunchtime just to stare at it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, one of the first things we do as keepers is come in in the morning and like live check everyone. So we make sure all the animals are alive and everyone made it through the night just fine. Um, and at this point, we didn't have overnight cameras in Zebra. Uh, we were getting ready to put them in. <laughs> and then 
Lydia said, well, here you go. <laughs> um, so they came in and did live checks. And then a little bit later, out pops a fourth zebra, a tiny zebra. <laughs> and he was already up. And so when baby, a lot of baby hoofs suck, but when baby zebra are born, they have to be up and walking within an hour. Um, or around an hour and up in nursing and everything. Cause in the wild they're prey animals. So they need to be up and ready to follow the herd right, right. Uh, as early as possible. So her, her birth, her Lydia giving birth obviously went fine. Um, so the baby was already up and dry and following mom. And um, so from there we do, um, and this is whether a baby is expected or not. Um, we do observations throughout the day. We note first the baby was already standing, but if the baby was born and hadn't been standing, we would note sure. when it first got up, um, when it first nurses, we watch to make sure it is nursing um, and that mom is being attentive because if the those first few hours are the most important, um, a lot of mammals produce colostrum, which is like a special kind of the first milk and that gives, um, a, a really important antibodies to the baby. So if for some reason mom is neglecting the baby or baby isn't nursing, whatever we would need to then intervene at that point and get that, the baby, that colostrum. Um, and there is like colostrum replacer products that you can use. Um, and then from there we watch, you know, that, mom is being attentive. The baby's nursing baby's up and seems healthy. Um, and Lydia is a great mom. Mosey did just fine. Um, we had to, the one thing that Mosey was not doing was following Lydia back into the barn. And this was right before we got a snowstorm and then like five days of 10 degree or below weather. <laughs> uh, he was born in the barn based on where, the blood and the placenta were <laughs> right. Right. But then at some point he followed mom, um, out into, they have, we have a barn and then off exhibit corrals for the zebra. Um, and he wasn't following mom back in. So we ended up shutting Lydia in the barn and then going in with our vet team and grabbing up the baby. They did a really quick neonatal exam to make sure everything was healthy or everything with him was healthy. And then we opened the door, barn door enough to shove him inside. He reunited with Lydia. And then they didn't leave the barn for like five days until it was warm enough for them to go out. And we could make sure that the baby was following up. Yeah. So, and we got to it really keep a close eye on the baby. And yeah, it's good. You know, it's good. let's talk about something real quick. So I'm not sure. Um, yeah. I know that all zebra stripe like butt stripe patterns are unique they're like fingerprints mm -hmm. and i know that 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 foals follow those like they can pick out their mom's butt in a crowd and yeah. um uh, there's a joke there but i'm gonna skip it but um anyway the um the thing that i'm wondering is if you you know do they like imprint on that pattern immediately? Do you know? Is it like a bird imprinting type thing? Or do they just learn to recognize it? Or should I make this an interrupting John and research it after the interview? I don't know for sure that it, how closely it's tied to the baby imprinting on mom's pattern. Um, 
So I would probably research it. I will do that. Um, but baby, it's not as strong. It's not true imprinting like the way a bird imprints. Okay, okay cool. If, if, you know, baby, if the baby is, I don't know, a week old or something, and for some reason mom died, and we were able to bring in another female, even a female horse that is nursing, as long as that female um, shows care for that baby and the baby nurses from her, the baby will then follow that female. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really interesting. See, now I'm glad I asked. That's yeah. really interesting. Um, It's time for Interrupting. 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 Interrupting John. All right, y'all. So I ended up doing a deep dive on this, and it is um, really interesting and really nerdy. So zebra foals do imprint on their mother's um, stripe pattern. And actually, for the first couple days of the foal's life, uh, mothers are wildly aggressive if any other zebra try to get near their foal. Uh, in order to help them imprint. Now, as Emily said, it's not quite the same type of over-the-top imprintation uh, that happens with birds, but it does happen, and it's really kind of cool that they can do that. Each zebra stripe pattern on a butt, and I love that it's on a butt, is as unique as a human or koala fingerprint, and uh, the foals do imprint. Now, it's not necessary for them to imprint. So yeah, you can bring in horses or other equids and they will totally be able to to raise an orphaned foal. However, there are actually some wildlife sanctuaries in Africa where um, they take in orphaned zebra foals and in order to make them more comfortable as they are being fed by human caretakers, the humans wear a zebra-striped outfit so that the foal will be able to imprint on it and will feel like it is with a mama zebra, even if it is a non-mama human. And um, they're very careful at these sanctuaries to not only wear the different costumes with different foals, but also to make sure that they always wear the same costume with the same foal because the foal will imprint on the costume just like it would on its actual mother's butt. So that's uh, that's awesome. I just I love the uh, you know the effort that goes into that kind of thing. Yay conservation! And uh, okay, cool. Back to the interview. So so let, let's go down that road a little bit then. Um, tell me more. Like so, zebras aren't horses, but they are equids. So what? Yes. Like how close to? horses are they apparently very if they can like nurse on them and stuff um and you know no, i was gonna say tell me tell me you know similarities differences all that good stuff um well they can interbreed um all of the equids can interbreed so that includes donkeys um you know the kurzwalski's horse which is the wild horse from mongolia um domestic horses they yeah they can all interbreed oh wow Um, okay now their offspring are usually sterile, so but they can hybridize. What, um, what is a horse zebra hybrid called? A horse bra? Um, a zorse? If I, well, if I remember this correctly, the name starts with what the dad is. So if the dad is a zebra, it's a zorse. Um, if and if the mom is a horse, if the dad is a zebra and the mom is a donkey, it's a zonkey. 
Zonky. That's just yeah. a fun word. And I've also heard them called Z-donks. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's what they're called. Uh, so they're closely related enough that they can hybridize. Um, they have a lot of the same body language and how they communicate with each other. Um, so equids in general, like examples, they'll, if they're um, upset and want like want another, I'm just going to use zebras as an example. If they want another zebra to move out of their space, they'll pin their ears back against their head and like bite or kick at them. And all of the body language precursors to that are the same or very similar across all equine species. Um, now, differences, like why don't you see people riding zebras around everywhere? Um, domestic horses and donkeys have been domesticated right, over right. thousands of, tens of thousands of years. Um, so zebra and wild equids very much still have that wild side. And zebra, in terms of differences, zebra are way more likely to stop and fight than like run away necessarily. Um, like they will kick, they will, they will bite. They're a lot more likely to bite than a horse might be. Um, and I've seen video of zebras in the wild, like grabbing lions by the scruff of their neck and like shaking them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and these are, these are grazers. Like they don't have sharp teeth, <laughs> but they can still, you know, do some damage. Um, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That's so, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting watching the giraffe and the zebra. They don't really like interact, like seek each other out. Um, but when it's warm enough, we can put them all on exhibit together. Um, and that was a whole process introducing the babies to the exhibit and to the rest of the herd mates and then to the other species <laughs> and all that. <laughs> Um, but our stallion, mainly our stallion, Tom will sometimes get upset when the giraffe are in his way. So he will like pin his ears at them and turn around and act like he's going to kick at them. And even if they, well, first of all, they barely pay him any attention because they're all over 10 feet tall. Right. Right. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> um, but even if they are paying attention to him, they don't know what that body language means. So like our female Francis will like put her head down and try to look at Tom and Tom's body language. Um, his ears are pinned. He's kind of moving his lips like he wants to bite at her. You know, he's very upset. And another equid would either challenge him back or move away. And Francis is more like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, no. They don't really... Unless the zebra outright try to chase the giraffe, which they rarely do, like they don't a hundred percent speak the same language. That's funny. Which is is really interesting um, to watch. So yeah, that's that's entertaining. Wow, very cool. Um, and just I, I'm I'm guessing most of my listeners know this, but what color are zebras? They are brown with white stripes. Okay. All right. Yes. Or brown or black with white stripes. Right, right, I've yeah. read where people argue that they are white with black stripes because they're kind of undercoat, not undercoat, but more of their body is white and then the stripes start. But if you look at their nose, their skin is black. Yes. Or gray. Yes, exactly. Um, and 
you can look at that with actually domestic horses. Um, if their nose is pink, most likely their skin will be pink. Uh, so if you look at a zebra's nose and it is uh, dark brown or black, then their skin is black. So I consider them black with white stripes. Absolutely. And they also <laughs> they also have, um, at least I know the Grevy's mountain zebras have patches on their um their forearms, their forelegs, I forget the name of the patch, but they have a patch of like a, a little hairless patch where you can see the skin there as well um, on, on each of the legs. And it's the same thing. You, you see black skin or brown skin, depending. Right. On, yeah. Um, yeah. So all equids have that actually. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. So it's called a chestnut. Um, and it's just a patch of like keratin, like your fingernails. Um, and if I'm remembering right, it's actually developed from, um, as horses evolved, they didn't always have just one hoof. They had several toes and it's actually developed from a vestigial toe that as they evolved, kind of just moved up and is there now. And it's only on the insides of their front legs. Right, right. Yeah, that's cool. I literally just learned about that the other day. Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. So that's cool. I love, I love tying that in. Yeah. I, um, I was at the San Diego Zoo the other day, uh, and I got to meet uh, a lot of their animals, one of which was a giraffe. No, a giraffe. I mean... This is where John cut, 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 cuts it out. So I was at the San Diego Zoo the other day, and I got to meet a ton of animals, actually, but one of them was a zebra, and I got to say hi, and it was it was very oh. cool. We got a cute little selfie together. Um, oh. Yeah, and um, it was it was really neat. But yeah, and that's where I learned about the chestnut, although I forgot yeah. that the name was Chestnut. That's a weird name, but I'll take it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, oh, one thing with the mountain zebra that does set them apart from other equids and zebra is they're the only ones they have a dewlap um under their neck so it's like a flap of skin that hangs down and i don't know the exact purpose for it but if you're looking at a zebra and it has that it's a mountain zebra nice nice so uh let's let's talk about your other charges uh we, we met them at the beginning but but tell me about your your giraffe herd sure um so we have our big bull who is he's 19 and then we have his son, JJ, which is short for Jimbe Jr. Nice. Nice. Um, and JJ, it was, like I said, is a little over a year old. So I can talk about JJ's birth a little bit if you want. Oh, yes, please. Um, so JJ's mom is Francis. Um, and Francis is, will be seven this year. Um, so we knew she was pregnant with JJ. And yeah, it's pretty JJ obvious is when a giraffe second. is pregnant. Oh, yeah. But oh, we yeah. also like saw the copulation. <laughs> uh, now let's go minute by minute and you can tell me what that was. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no. Well, it's not very long anyway, so it literally would be a minute. <laughs> oh, no. Or less. The actual act is not very long. The um, courtship behaviors leading up to it are longer. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so we had a conception date for JJ and then um, JJ is... Francis and Jumbe's second calf. So we, their first calf was also born here. Um, her name is B, and she's at Philadelphia Zoo now. Yes, I know um, B very well. I saw B down at Knoxville, and I live right outside of Philadelphia. So I saw her the first day. I think she was on exhibit at Philly. Yeah, no, B's B's cool. I've 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 spent some time with B. Yeah, I haven't. 
gone. I haven't been to see her since she went to Philly. So I need to make a trip there. Um, but based on how long Francis's gestation with her was, um, our potential due date for Francis was December 17th. Now, by the time Mosey was born, she hadn't given birth yet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so we were, you know, we were all prepped like it could be any day. Um, so Mosey was born on the 23rd, somewhat unexpectedly. We come in the next morning on Christmas Eve. There's a brand new baby giraffe on the ground, still wet, hasn't <laughs> stood up yet. Um, so, you know, he stood up fine. He nursed fine. Like everything was normal with him. Um, so he was not unexpected in that we were waiting for him, but we weren't expecting him to be born the day after we had another brand new baby. <laughs> so it was very exciting, but also, you know, you asked before how it kind of changes our day. Um, making sure that baby and mom are safe is like the top priority. Um, especially in the winter, cause we couldn't have them out. Like we can't have them outside. Babies right, right. are very sensitive you know, to cold and heat and anything. Um, so it was, you know, making sure everything was normal with the babies. And especially because we had the snowstorm coming, making sure like everyone was inside and our heaters were working and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, we have June Bay, JJ and Francis. And then our other female is Lucy. Um, and she will be 21 on actually February 2nd. So almost She's almost there. Um, she's never had her own calf. Uh, we were tracking her hormone cycles for a while and she's never, as far as we know, gotten pregnant. She's never had a live calf. Um, but especially for B, she played a very, um, obvious kind of anti role. Um, like she would, it, at some point she interacted with B more than Francis did. <laughs> other than when B would go to Francis to nurse. Um, right, right. And Lucy played an anti-role to JJ. It didn't seem like she did it for as long as she did with B. Once JJ got, you know, 10 months or up, he's a very rambunctious giraffe. Like we joke that Lucy didn't like boys. Fair. Because <laughs> she doesn't like being, or she doesn't really like being around Jumbe. Um, so JJ would then go try to interact with, we call them the moms, Lucy and Francis. Um, and That's they would adorable. Kinda, yes. Um, they kind of kick him away and be like, no, just go, go do something else. Stop annoying me. <laughs> um, but he actually really, uh, even from the beginning, really enjoyed hanging out with his dad, which isn't necessarily like, an expected thing with hoofstock. Like the males play no part in raising the babies unless it's like, you know, a breeding, um, a zebra stallion with his harem of females and he'll protect the herd from predators, but they play no part in directly raising the offspring. Um, but JJ, I have pictures of JJ as he was growing up standing next to Jumbe. He'd go behind Jumbe and like kind of nudge at him to get Jumbe to flick his tail to get the flies away. Um, and then Mosey, yeah. Um, and then Mosey and Tom, this was the first, um, full baby that Tom has, our zebra stallion has been around. Um, Tom grew up with other foals, but since he's been an adult, Mosey is the first foal he's been around and he and Mosey play all the time. 
Like sometimes Mosey, even from the beginning, would spend more time with Tom than with his mom. Wow. So they're both, um, this is totally anthropomorphizing, uh, but they're both daddy's boys. That's really cute. I'll take it. Yeah. Anthropomorphizing Uh, is totally allowed when it's adorable. (laughs) Yeah. And it is very adorable. Yes. So with the giraffe, yeah, those are our four giraffe. Um, We do a lot of training with them. Also, um, my coworker, Amber Howard, is the primary for them. And then our coworker, Danielle, does a lot of training with them, too. Um, So they're all at various stages of being trained for hoof trims and injections. And they'll all stick their tongues out on cue. Nice. So... Um, we were talking about giraffes and how well-trained they are and everything. Um, and I believe that giraffes can be found in Africa, which is my cheesy, cheesy segue to another thing that we need to discuss. Uh, so go, go ahead and, and tell me about this. Okay. Um, so Tiffany and I in May are going to South Africa, um, on a work trip, which we're very excited about. Um, so we are going to Moholoholo, which is a wildlife rehabilitation center um, and sanctuary for non-releasable animals. And they work with everything. They started as like raising orphan rhinos like 20 years ago. Um, and now they take in birds and mammals and uh, reptiles they take in carnivores and hoofstock and um as much as they can they rehab and release them um they also participate in local research projects like with endangered vultures and tracking leopards and uh so we're going to volunteer but we'll pretty much be doing keeper work right right Um, that's awesome so it, I'm really excited. And is this through Quarters for Conservation? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. So for those of you who are yeah. listening who haven't heard this yet, um, we talked about this with with Phil, with Tiffany, with Sarah Gladys, basically everyone I've ever talked to at Knoxville talks about Quarters for Conservation, um, which is this amazing thing where anyone on staff, not just keepers, but anyone on staff can apply to go off and do these these programs and have it funded. And um, Tiffany's done it before and was hoping to go go back to Africa this year. And it turns out that she is with Emily. So this is this is just one of the many ways that the zoo contributes to conservation in a unique way. Yeah. What did so, you have to do to get that? So there's a an application process every year. Um so we you can apply for one individual project and one group project. So the group Tiffany and I applied as a group. Um, and it's not necessarily just project, you know, conservation projects overseas, um, other keepers applied to go to conferences or, um, like classes, my individual one, which also got approved is for, um, a hoof trim class actually that was developed by a farrier who works with Cheyenne mountain zoo. Um, and it's geared specifically towards zookeepers and trimming, um, exotic hoof stock under human care. Um, So we had to write up an application, write up our budget, um, you know, including airline flights and food and all that kind of stuff. And then it goes to our um, Q4C committee, 
um, and they look at all the projects and figure out if they get approved or not. Very cool. I love that. <gasps> Giraffe! Lucy came to visit us. Hi, Lucy. I like you. Are oh. you gonna she probably won't come over because I don't have any food. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Very cool. Well, congrats on that. That's really awesome. Yeah. So is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we get to our, our last couple of questions here? I can talk more about hookstock if you want. Sure. Go for it. Yeah. I'm here for uh, it. I love, I mean, I obviously love working hookstock. Um, and it's kind of like keepers tend to fall into enjoy working with certain types of animals. Um, and sometimes hookstock kind of get dismissed as like oh they're dumb or you can't train them or even from the public like zoo miami has a lot of different kind of hoof stock um which is great but you know when people are walking by they can sometimes be like oh it's another deer right right you know what am i looking at so um i want people to realize how cool hoof stock are <laughs> um there's all sorts of different types. Like I couldn't even tell you all the different types of gazelles and antelopes, um, in Africa, much less around the world. Um, but they're all have their own adaptations, um, and differences. And, you know, some of them are really charismatic, like giraffes. Mm -hmm. Also, all of the giraffe have come in to visit. Oh, hi guys. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but in terms of training them, one thing I really enjoy is it's hard in many ways to train whatever kind of animal. Each animal has its own challenges when it's, when you're training whatever kind of animal. Right, right. Um, but with hoofstock, especially if they didn't grow up, um, in close contact with people or having, you know, positive interactions with people, they and they always will have that innate fear instinct, which makes sense because in the wild they get eaten. Right. Yeah, They're the ones that get hunted. Yeah. Um, and one thing I've noticed is the animals that are easiest to work around in captivity, as in the ones that are the least reactive and more likely to stop and investigate things, are probably the ones that would get eaten first in the wild. Because the ones that <laughs> get away in the wild are the ones that run away first. Right, right. And run away the fastest. Um, so that's an interesting correlation. But when you're training them or even just working around them as a keeper, because anytime we interact with them, we're training them, whether we mean to be or not. They're right. learning something from how we act toward them and interact with them. Um, before you can even move into training, using operant conditioning, specific behaviors like you know, voluntary injection or hoof trim or target even, um, you have to build a solid relationship of trust between you and that animal that in my experience working with other like carnivores and great apes, um, they don't have that as strong fear instinct. Um, so when also hoof stock, when they spook, it's like instant feedback. If you do something that scares them, they will instantly tell you. So it's helped me learn a lot as a trainer in interacting with them, how even I move my body affects how they will respond. Oh, that's really cool. 
Yeah. And one thing I really enjoyed is when an animal that in the wild or in captivity too, when they're scared, they, they instantly run away. Like it's a very strong instinct. So when you built up enough of a positive relationship with them and what we call a trust bank that they choose to stay instead of running away and they go from seeing you as a negative, like something to run away from to a positive and they come seek you out. That makes me very happy. <laughs> um, it's very reinforcing for me as a keeper to have that, that strong trust relationship with an animal that I know if they just, you know, came across me in their day-to-day life would probably run away. Right. That is so cool. If that makes sense. Um, and building that relationship takes a lot of time and a lot of consistency, like consistent positive interactions with them. Most of the time it's food based. Um, a lot of animals are motivated by food. Humans included. Humans included. I I have to say, if you offer me a pizza, I will probably do whatever you want. Yep. <laughs> um, so it took a lot of, first we figured out what they really like. And then, you know, just throughout the day or as they're there, if they happen to be in the barn, I would walk in quietly in a way that wouldn't always spook them. Sometimes it still would. And just toss them a treat. So then they learn when the people appear, we get good things. And then as that trust builds, um, they become more what we call resilient, where if something does spook them, they're the stronger your relationship with them is, the more likely they are to get over that fear and come back. Or even like stay and not spook at all. They may still react like, oh, this is scary, but they'll still stay with you. <laughs> That's really awesome. I, I love, you know, I think you're right. I think a lot of times hoofstock keepers don't, you know, you're right. They're, 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 they're their own breed. And I, I don't mean hoofstock, I mean hoofstock keepers. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think that the hoofstock are, are just kind of the, the grazing idiots to a lot of people at the zoos. Obviously not to me, but I, I do see that attitude. Um, and And it's cool to think about how, like, you have to earn that trust. And, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've joked with some hoofstock keepers before about how I feel like if you're a hoofstock keeper, your, uh, your, your dating life is going to be a little interesting too, because, um, there, there's a lot of, of working on building trust and being a little <laughs> skittish and stuff. Very true. Probably. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I haven't had one dispel that thought yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> There's also the whole going home smelling like the barn. At least you're not a tamandua keeper. <laughs> That's very true. And I probably smell better than when I worked with the great apes. Fair, fair. So. Um, but by the way, if you if you uh, if you end up looking at your phone after this interview, you're going to see that Tiffany has already messaged you cute ape photos because I texted her while we were having that discussion. <laughs> My goal was to have her barge in and yell at you on the podcast, jokingly, but um, she's, you know, working. So, but yeah. <laughs> so are there any conservation organizations that you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, the Giraffe Conservation Fund. Um, it's the only 100% giraffe-focused um, conservation project in Africa, and they um, 
they do a lot of population monitoring. Um, they work with local organizations to, they've worked to relocate giraffe um, to different areas that may need to be repopulated um, or in an area where a population's in danger, they've you know relocated them to somewhere safer. In terms of hoofstock in general, the Sahara Conservation Fund um, works with species specifically um, that live in the desert. And they've actually, within the past few years, released scimitar horned oryx back into Chad, where they nice. were previously extinct. Um, That's so, so cool. They, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, so they've been doing that project. Um, they work with Dama, Gazelle. They work with ostrich also and a few other species. Um, but they're a project that I don't hear mentioned a lot in zoo circles. And um I think they do a lot of good work and they're in country, you know, working directly with those species and repopulating and yeah. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. And you're right. I've never, I haven't heard of them before. So I'll be doing some, some checking that out uh, for yeah. the draft conservation foundation. Uh, you can go yeah. back and listen to episode 77 to hear from uh, one, one of their creators, uh, Stephanie Fennessy talking about all the amazing work they do. It's, it's good stuff. So if you haven't heard that yet, go check it out. But, and that leads us to. It's time now, don't you know, we've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rock Safari Poop Story. Hit me. Well, my actual poop story, poop story. is related to great apes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Because hoofstock poop is really just digested grass. Like, right, right. it's boring. Honestly, their pee is probably more interesting. Um, like, Jumbe's pee smells like Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Jumbe. Your pee <laughs> smells like Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> He's just Jumbe. right there eating. Just, yep. That's amazing. See that tongue working? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so my poop story. Poop so story. one of the female chimps I worked with, um, Samantha, has very good aim. And one way that we would feed them, so their exhibit is surrounded by a moat, a very, very wide moat. <laughs> with water at the bottom. So in order to feed them on exhibit, we would um, like throw their diet across the moat. And if she's not happy with what you're giving her or not giving her, <laughs> he will, she's not even obvious about it. She's just like, like I'm just sitting here and then she'll kind of move her hand, but hope you won't see and get um, a poop missile. And then when you're not looking, she will throw it and she's very good at launching it. So oh, no. <laughs> I've, I've been hit in the head with chimp poop at least a few times. <laughs> yeah. Does this have something to do with why you're not a, a huge, you know, ape person? <laughs> I don't throw their poop. So, <laughs> you know, and if they did, I don't think their aim would be very good. Fair. And also the chimps would paint with their poop on the walls of holding and I've, I've slipped in it a few times. So <laughs> yeah, I did slip in zebra semen once. <laughs> Is there a story or are we just going to leave it at that? We can just leave it at that. Perfection. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been so much fun. 
Yeah, I've enjoyed it. So glad we got chat. Yeah, yeah. And there you have it, folks. Uh, literally just loved that intro so much. And then the conversation got so good. And um, yeah, I just, I enjoyed all of that so much. So Emily, thank you so much for doing that all the way back in January. And um, I look forward to sharing your more recent interview next week. Uh, yeah. And y'all make sure you're checking out at Zoo Knoxville on Instagram and Facebook and zoonoxville.org for information about the zoo. And um yeah, I don't really have much else to say. I'm so appreciative that y'all are here. Y'all rock. Uh, thank you to my Red Panda level patron, Laura Shank. And uh, remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Stydirk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.